The opinions expressed in the Palace of Glittering Delights are mine and mine alone. No one would be stupid enough to hold them. The things discussed in the Palace of Glittering Delights may lead to spoilers if you have not seen the topic of today's episode. There may also be occasional ranting and swearing. Don't say I didn't warn you. Len Wein was only the third regular writer to take on the amazing Spider-Man when he debuted as writer with issue 151, cover dated December 1975. Wein would write the book, taking over from the tumultuous Jerry Conway run for three years, and by and large it was a relatively uneventful time. After Stan Lee and Steve Ditko created The Hero Who Could Be You and Lena Remita cemented exactly who Spider-Man and his alter ego Peter Parker were, it was left to Jerry Conway to upset the apple cart, killing a beloved character, changing Peter's life irrevocably and making sure Spider-Man was a strip that people believed was where anything could happen. Ween eschewed this. Over his run... Peter remained moderately stable, Ween preferring to concentrate on Peter's supporting cast and villains rather than Peter himself. The problems Peter encountered during these comics tended to be more mundane, but still relatable to Spider-Man's young audience. He'd get a hole in his shoe, he'd attend weddings for the food, his student life rarely affording him a slap-up meal, his costume would smell after an encounter with a trash can. These were the kind of problems that the Parker look would throw up rather than, you know, contrived things. Peter became more of an observer as others moved on to new phases of their lives, perhaps leaving him a little in the background. This isn't to say that Ween's run was dull, though. This is a perfectly fine take on Peter's life, and again, something we all go through. There are periods where we feel that our friends and colleagues are moving on, getting new jobs, being promoted, having kids, and we can feel left behind for whatever reason. In Peter's case, he's riding out the last few years of his college career before he can embark upon his next step. The supporting cast likewise remained relatively as was. Peter remained an employee of the Daily Bugle, taking selfies of his wall-crawling alter ego for the irascible J. Jonah Jameson. He carried on dating Mary Jane Watson after they had become close, following the death of Peter's true love, Gwen Stacy. Flash Thompson, Harry Osborn, Liz Allen, Ned Leeds, Betty Brandt and Aunt May all featured in storylines, and, in addition to bringing back tried and true members of Peter's rogues gallery like Hammerhead, Dr Octopus and The Punisher, Ween would introduce new additions to the canon like Rocket Racer, Will-O-The-Wisp, and Hitman. Well, they can't all be winners. He'd even resurrect the Green Goblin. <clears throat> kind of. After Conway wrapped up his clone saga with issue 149, Archie Goodwin would put a full stop to it with issue 150, giving Ween a clear slate from which to work. He kicked off his run with an utterly magnificent John Romita cover. If you listened to the previous entries in this series where I covered the Stan Lee John Romita run, 
you were no doubt bored of me saying that Ramita's covers were spectacular. Well, that isn't changing anytime soon. Issue 151's cover sees Spider-Man trapped in the sewers, water cascading atop and around him, rats nibbling at his toes. Floods won't help you, mister, a determined Spider-Man cries. Only one of us is leaving here alive. We don't see the subject of his ire, but rarely have we seen Spider-Man so angry. Can you guess the shocking identity of Spidey Super Foe? The cover asks in a spiky word balloon. It's not one of Ramita's best covers, but that's only because he's hit the ball for six on too many previous occasions. But that this wonderful cover isn't one of his crowning achievements only underscores how great his work is. Skirmish Beneath the Streets was written by Len Wein, the penciler was Ross Andrew, and the inker was John Romita. Letters were by John Costanza, colours by Glynis Wein, and this kind of stays the same team more or less throughout, except were otherwise noted. The splash page is moody and evocative. It's early morning, and our hero is taking the dead body of his clone, essentially his own dead body, to the incineration plant beyond NYC's 12-mile limit. Ween is wrapping up the last loose end of the clone saga in a way that means no one will ever be able to bring back the clone's body. Looks directly into camera. Peter reasons that, as it's his final wish to be cremated, that it's presumably the clone's wish as well, but he prepares to pay his last respects, and suddenly... His spider sense tingles. He looks around, but sees nothing. Something that, A, you'd think Peter Parker would be a little bit more wary of, and, two, shows Len Wein setting up some storylines for further down the road already. Peter dumps the body in the incineration plant and leaves. Now, if we think this through... This is probably a very traumatic event for Peter. Sure, he can't have Peter Parker's dead body show up. That would be inconvenient. But he can't keep it. That would be macabre. So this is really his only recourse. But it's still quite spooky. So much so that Peter is still thinking about it later that morning. As he and Murray Jane lounge in the glorious sun of an Empire State University morning. MJ looks beautiful in a casual denim shirt and white jeans, although she'd best be careful, lest she gets grass stains all over her butt. Peter looks like he got dressed in the dark. Brown corduroy pants and a yellow shirt. Don't go together, Pete. Flash Thompson idles by and rushes the gang off to class. Peter can't help but laugh. Is this the same Flash Thompson who used to bully puny Parker in high school? Times change, Pete. Flash replies, and people change with them. Good on Flash for realising the value of a good education. Now, as a rule, if you've listened to the other instalments, you'll know when I do these retrospectives, I don't look too far in the future, unless it's to address a retcon or just have some fun. But the Flash-Thompson-Peter Parker relationship is why the relaunch of Spider-Man in 1999 so missed the mark for me. Flash and Peter had grown and developed so much over the years, maturing into young adults, from the hyperactive teens we used to know, that the reversal of Flash's character growth felt more like character assassination. 
This has been reverse reversed since, but it still demonstrates how boneheaded and misguided that reboot could be. Anyway, the threesome head to class and they happen upon an old friend, Harry Osborne. Harry, last seen in issue 137, has been seeking help for his drug dependency and mental health issues and, having recovered, has been released back to resume his studies. There's a few issues here. Now, it is nice to see Harry and Ween acknowledging Harry's issues, but Harry seems to have had a minor personality change. He's now a lot more nervy and unsure of himself than he was before. I acknowledge and like this. One doesn't go through what Harry went through and emerge unscathed. However, would he just pick his studies right up? Would he not now be a year or so behind the others? I mean, if we're going to no-prize this, it's possible that Harry kept up his studies whilst in the clinic so as to not fall behind. And, you know, that could have been a good motivator for him. Peter frets over Harry's reappearance just a tad because he's Peter Parker and he wouldn't be Peter Parker if he didn't. He recalls that Harry knew that Peter was Spider-Man. But overall, in a nice bit of character growth, Peter realises it isn't all about him and he's happy to see Harry. Flash takes it upon himself to invite Flash to Ned and Betty's engagement party, which J. Jonah Jameson is holding at his apartment tonight. Ned and Betty have had the longest engagement in history. Ned proposed to Betty originally back in issue 30 in the autumn of 1965, so they've been engaged for 10 years. And Jonah's only just throwing them an engagement party? It's rather cynical of Jonah, because, you know, maybe he thought it would never last. Also, I don't know that it's really Flash's place to invite someone to somebody else's party at a third person's home. But it's a pretty neat way of explaining what's going to happen next. And sure enough, between panels, it's night time. And we are all at Jonah's plush apartment on the Upper East Side. What follows is a great scene. Ween stated in his interviews in Comic Creators on Spider-Man, written by Tom DeFalco, that he loved Jonah. And that comes through here. Jonah is at his irascible best, fretting over Flash, poeing his precious Guy Lombardo and Montavani records, stopping a larger lady from using his Indonesian incense burner as a seat, and generally fretting about how much caviar and champagne everyone is drinking. If he was worried about that, maybe he shouldn't have ordered caviar and champagne. It's a genuinely funny scene, and it's quite rare to see Jonah out of his element. He does threaten an employee with the sack if she doesn't eat the tuna salad, though, which I suspect will not go down well with HR on Monday morning. Peter and Mary Jane arrive, and as before, MJ looks stunning, and Peter looks awful. Although, let's not forget, this is the 70s, and it's possible that Peter was, in fact, the height of fashion. MJ has a silver dress on that gives off a glittering sheen, although in some panels it looks like it's a pants-dress combo. Either way, she looks gorgeous. Peter, however is wearing a safari coat, a red and black Hawaiian shirt, and light green slacks. Hmm. MJ didn't dress you then, eh, Pete? As MJ tries to get Harry to open up, Peter congratulates the happy couple. Apparently this is a combined engagement going away party, as Jonah has reassigned Betty and Ned to the Paris office following the wedding, which is, once again, Len Wein subtly setting up a future story. 
There's some further wrapping up of the last run with Ned wondering what caused Professor Warren to freak out, but Peter quickly kills that conversation, and we mill around the party with Robbie, offering Harry any help he may need, and the expositional news network mentioning in the background that blackouts are happening across the city. It's to Ween's credit that all of this is so smooth as to be practically unnoticeable. Now, if you've been paying attention to the news, and let's take a moment to note that I totally buy that Jonah is the kind of person that would have the news on at a party, it will come as no surprise that a blackout hits Jonah's apartment at this precise moment, and it will come as even less of a surprise that Peter steals away to find out what is happening. He notices that there seems to be a pattern to the blackout, and decides to find out what's occurring as Spider-Man. He webs the underside of a passing police helicopter, but sadly has to ditch his beautiful 70s fashions due to having nowhere to put them, changing as he does whilst hanging upside down from a web stuck to the underside of the helicopter. I did wonder why he couldn't just make a web backpack, as he has done before, and keep his clothes there. But then I remembered what an eye saw that coat and shirt were, and suddenly I didn't shed any tears. Also, given that Peter was at a party with MJ, where copious amounts of alcohol would be consumed, I wouldn't have thought he'd be wearing his Spider-Man costume under his clothes in case the night ended up back at MJ's. Speaking of MJ, according to retcon history, she knows Peter is Spider-Man here. So why does she make a big song and dance of wondering where he went to? This will not be the first time she does this, and of course the real-life answer is Len Wein didn't know that MJ knows, because the story establishing that she knows hasn't been written yet. This is why you have to be careful when treading over someone else's continuity, folks. As the police helicopter flies ever higher, the nature of the blackout becomes apparent. The Shocker is spelling his name in lights, or in dark, using the blacked-out buildings to make his name visible from space. This was phenomenally daft, to be fair, and I really don't see the point of going to all this trouble, but it does make for a cool visual. Spider-Man notes that this is silly, and points out that the Shocker was merely an amped-up bank and armoured car robber, and wonders what on earth he's up to. The only way to find out is to find the Shocker, and given that he hasn't finished spelling his own name yet, and given that the only place to do this is to cut the cables under the street, Spider-Man takes to the sewers. I do like it when Spider-Man uses his brain to figure out a problem. Despite the smell, Spidey finds the Shocker, and we find a fight. It's actually a pretty good one. Andrew's layouts are brilliant, and as always, it's nice to see Spider-Man fighting confined spaces, as this really isn't his milieu. A close-up quarters fight with a villain as deadly as the Shocker is not what Spidey needs, especially as he, kel surprise, runs out of web fluid, allowing the Shocker to get the upper hand. He collapses the tunnel on Spidey's head, knocking him cold. And if that wasn't bad enough, Spider-Man awakens to find himself trapped as the sewer water pools around him. By today's standards, this is actually a quiet debut. Ween doesn't come in and have Spidey get the bejesus kicked out of him by a new and deadly villain, nor does he kill him off or put him in a coma. Ween simply tells a neat story. It's revolutionary, I know, but there we go. Character work is exemplary, subplots and plot elements are introduced subtly, and there is such good groundwork laid here the reader won't even realise it was groundwork until a lot further down the line. A pretty good debut for 
our Mr. Ween. Issue 152 features more Ramita goodness on its cover. It's attributed to Gil Kane and Ramita, but it looks like pure Ramita. The Shocker hurls vibroblasts at Spider-Man, which has flung him over the balcony and directly into the whirling blades of the electricity generator. You've listened to these before. It's Ramita. It's brilliant. Let's move on. Shattered by the Shocker sees Ween and Andrew ably abetted now by Mike Esposito and Frank Gaia as Inkers, and it picks up directly where it left off last time. Spidey is trapped in the sewers as water gathers around him. If he doesn't find an exit soon, he'll drown. He's like a spider in the bath. It's Ross Andrews' panel layouts here that make this sequence as dramatically engaging as it is. Long, thin panels cross the page, capturing Spidey's frantic search for egress admirably, as well as showing the horror of drowning. Our hero is never seen with more than his chin above water and rats scurrying all around him and nibbling at his toes. I have a hard time believing that Spider-Man could be swept away by a deluge as easily as shown here, especially as he has his hand clearly gripped around the rung of the manhole ladder. But that's what happens. Luckily, he's not too far away from the pipe that empties the sewer into the river. Spider-Man is saved by pollution. Peter heads for home, and Len takes this interlude to introduce another subplot. A scruffy man pulls over the dustbins and trash cans to find a small drop of hooch. He talks to himself and to thin air before running, screaming into the night. Spoilers, this is Dr. Octopus, resurrected here after the last writer dropped a literal bomb on him. Ween plays fur, never showing the man's face, but we do see both of his hands in frame, whilst off-panel, a hand pours a drink, a subtle clue to the man's identity. Back with Peter, who, after a change of clothes, rushes back to the party, but arrives as the last guests are leaving. Jonah tells him that Murray Jane left hours ago. Peter done made a boo-boo. How much of a boo-boo is made clear the next day at ESU, were in the canteen. MJ gives Peter the freezing cold shoulder. She refuses to even look at him. So a despondent Peter sits with Flash and Harry, and Flash tells Peter Harry is his new roommate. Where Harry has been living up till now isn't mentioned. Whilst it's nice to see Peter, Flash and Harry being all male bondy, the death of Gwen has clearly left a vacuum. MJ sits alone, with no other female companionship. I didn't buy this. When I covered the Lee Ramita run, I mentioned how, of all of them, Mary Jane drifted in and out of the orbit, clearly living her own life with her own circle of friends. Since Gwen's death, Mary Jane seems to hang out with Peter exclusively. And I don't think that that rings true. I've also said if you kill or remove an important character, you should really replace it with something of equal value. But no other female character of equal standing to Gwen has been introduced. Glory Grant was brought in as Peter's neighbour, but there's no reason for her to have a lot of interaction with Murray Jane. Maybe having Glory be Peter's neighbour and fellow Bugle employee and being at ESU would have been stretching credibility too far. But it would have been nice to bring her into the mix a bit more. Maybe have her join them for double dates with Flash. Oh, hell! Stretch credibility. This is a Marvel comic. Have her enroll at ESU. Make her part of the gang. Give her and MJ a friendship independent of Peter and Flash and Harry. It just would have been nice to see. 
Elsewhere, the shocker is demanding New York City pay him a million dollars to not black the city out again, and the mayor tells him to stuff it. Spider-Man thinks the mayor has guts to tell the shocker that on live TV. Not a lot of brains, but guts. He also questions his own brains, heading to the 41st Street power station to locate the shocker. The rest of the issue depicts that confrontation, but it's worth pointing out that Spider-Man knocks out and webs up two innocent security guards just going about their night job. Spider-Man then wonders why he has a bad reputation with the law. Gee, I wonder. The fight with the Shocker is fine, nothing special until the end, whereby Spidey webs the Shocker's thumbs to his vibrator units. This is a nice inversion of how he defeated him before. In the previous issue, Spider-Man webbed his thumbs so Shocker couldn't use his vibrators. Here, Spidey makes it so he can't turn them off. Making the Shocker bounce around the room like an out-of-control basketball. This is a perfectly okay conclusion to the story. Ween has eased himself in gently, not upsetting the apple cart, merely establishing the characters, setting up future stories, and giving Spidey a familiar villain to tangle with. It's pretty much Ween's run in a nutshell. Issue 153's cover promises a football field becomes a dangerous battleground as Spider-Man fights to save an innocent child. The deadliest hundred yards. The cover is again by Kane and Ramita and features Spider-Man holding a young girl and bouncing over armed goons who are firing at them. The actual story by Ween, Andrew and Esposito is called The Longest Hundred Yards. Slight miscommunication there between the editor and the writer. Who was the editor? Oh... Oh, it was Len Wein. Oh, well, never mind then. The story opens with a James Bond-style pre-credit sequence, an action beat that has little to do with the actual story, but is fun nevertheless. Spider-Man is hanging around, busy doing nothing, when he spots a big yellow taxi. Spidey spots the taxi is off duty, despite having a passenger in the back, and the cab's roof lights are blinking the universally recognised sign for S.O.S. I love how every comic and TV hero, irrespective of a background, knows the Morse code for SOS. Spidey's senses are tingling rather redundantly, because even from this great height, Spidey can see there are two men in the back with a gun at the cabbie's head, and it is he who is sending out an SOS. For me, this was a tad strange. Spider-Man's spider sense is tingling. He's seen the SOS. He knows there is trouble. We don't need to hear that he can see the guys in the back, especially as from the distance that he's at and the angle that he's at, there's no way he could see the guys in the back unless he had both telescopic and x-ray vision. Irrespective, our hero leaps in and not only trashes the cab, but a fire hydrant in the process. Thanks, Spidey. I like this opening. Sure, Spider-Man's a tad curlers and he causes more damage than he saves, but... It's a funny beat. Spider-Man could show a little more self-awareness, though. When he gets off the bus at ESU the next morning, he's laughing to himself that the crooks got hard time, and he had a few laughs, but what about the poor cabbie whose taxi was ruined? As an aside, I forget that this opening exists every time I read this story. I first read this one in one of the British Spider-Man Christmas annuals, which cut this entire opening and leapt straight into the story on page five. Peter arrives at ESU and immediately spots his friends buying an ice cream. Nothing says that these are morning classes more than these guys eating ice cream for breakfast, but I guess they are students. 
and students will eat anything at any time of day. Art-wise, there's some pretty funky stuff going on here. Whilst Harry is clearly a Ross Andrew face, with the exception of the close-up on panel 5, Mary Jane's face looks like it's been touched up by Ramita. And what follows is a peculiar scene, and it doesn't help that there's now two ways of looking at it. As originally intended, Mary Jane thinks Peter took off from the party the other night to take photos. You know, his job. Yes, he should have told her where he was going, and it was a dick move to just leave her, though, but it is his job, and Mary Jane knows this. Murray Jane, however, is still giving Peter the cold shoulder, not really giving him a chance to apologise. She even says maybe Peter isn't worth it. Sadly, after pointing out that Murray Jane declared all-out war when she thought she may be losing Peter to the clone of Gwen Stacy, Peter's the one who loses his temper and storms off, telling MJ that they should forget the whole relationship thing. MJ backs down. She tells Peter he is worth fighting for. And this is where it went a bit off. Both Mary Jane and Peter are hot-headed. More so than Peter and Gwen were when they were together. But Peter doesn't really have the moral high ground here. By the same token, Mary Jane should give him a chance to explain and apologise. Again, it's his job to take photos of newsworthy events, and those newsworthy events can occur at any time. It's not a 9-to-5 gig. I think this is supposed to be cute, but it misses the mark. It lets Peter off. He never does apologise, and it makes MJ out to be passive, which he's never been before. Of course, the second way to look at it paints MJ in an even worse light, thanks to the aforementioned later retcon. MJ knows Peter is Spider-Man, So her giving him a really hard time just makes her out to be petulant. This isn't Ween's fault at all, but Marvel, you published that retcon, so we, as readers, have to deal with it. With MJ and Peter back on speaking terms, Ned Leeds suddenly breezes in. He's at ESU to do an interview with Bradley Bolton, a former college football star turned computer whiz who is visiting ESU for homecoming. Ned has been sent to interview him. Why a former college footballer turned computer techie is news is something you'd have to ask J. Jonah Jameson. Anyway, Bolton is wandering the football field, lost in his memories, when Ned and Peter arrive. Peter instantly shows off, saying he very much enjoyed Bolton's paper on intermolecular computer synapses. This title seems to imply Bolton is involved with making computers mimic human memory and learning as it occurs in the human brain. And I wonder if Bolton was inspired by the living brain from issue 8. Bolton, it turns out, was considered the best quarterback ESU has ever seen until one fateful day. Did Flash never play college football? I mean, we never saw Flash play high school football, but it has been established somewhere that he was a pretty decent player, and if memory serves, he got into ESU on a sports scholarship. I mean, you know, we've never seen him play at ESU or in high school, but whatever. Bolton tells Peter and Ned of that fateful day, a day when he only had two minutes to win the final game of the season against Metro U. A hundred yards stood between him and victory, but as he inched ever closer to his goal, Metro U piled on him. He failed to reach his destination by a mere foot. After losing that point, the game was lost, and Bolton blames himself. He quit football 
followed up his other dream of electronics and got a job at Stark International, where he met his wife, Ellen, and spawned a daughter, Mindy. Backstory duly delivered, a note is passed to Dr. Bolton, and he is forced to leave, telling Peter and Ned he'll see them at the homecoming dance later. Right, you've all guessed how this story's going to play out, right? A redemption tale of Bolton finally making that fateful run and winning? Well, yes, but its predictability doesn't make the tale any less satisfying, as we shall see. For the note wasn't the missus, asking for a secret rendezvous in a nearby hotel, where she would play Gina and he would be Mr. Chains. No! This was far more sinister. Mindy has been kidnapped by Payne, a man who wants the final component of a computer catalogue Dr. Bolton has built to catalogue all worldwide habitual offenders. Remember those initials. If Bolton hands it over, Mindy will be freed. If not, Payne crushes a small bird in his hands for emphasis like he's doomsday or something. Mindy will die. Payne just hurt an animal. As far as I'm concerned, he's the one who deserves to die. Cut to the homecoming dance. Mary Jane is cutting a rug, looking sensational in a red mini-dress that shows every curve and feature. Peter has dyed his hair black just for the occasion. Possibly that's a colouring error. Peter, once again showing his complete cluelessness, breaks off his dance with MJ to speak to Ned. I mean, really. Dance first. Peter, Ned's going to be there all night. In this instance, I get why Mary Jane is annoyed. This isn't his job. He's not off to be Spider-Man. He's ditching the ravishing redhead to ask if Ned has heard about Dr. Bolton. I mean, I know we have no story if he doesn't do this, but again, really? Ned spotted, like Peter, that whatever was in the note had affected Dr. Bolton. I don't know how both of them spotted such a subtle clue, but there's not a lot they can do about it just yet. Ned, far more worldly wise, tells Peter go and dance with Murray Jane. Lest he be sleeping in the doghouse again. MJ is surprisingly fine with this, and she and Peter dance to the song, which is apparently Kung Fu Fighting. I really hope that was played at their wedding. Peter spots Bolton leaving, and for reasons not explained, his spider sense tingles, although the art doesn't show the familiar lines around the head thing. The art is correct. Peter's spider sense shouldn't tingle here. Peter, personally, isn't in any danger. Anyway, Mary Jane is clearly angling for them to keep their bodies close, not only throughout the dance, but through the night. No one said being a superhero wasn't hard. Peter instead angles Mary Jane towards Harry, who... As Peter planned, asks, can I cut in? Peter jumps at the chance, pushing Mary Jane at Harry and says he's going for some punch. Mary Jane says, I'll punch you, Parker, which was genuinely hysterical. Well done, MJ. Peter heads after Bolton and sees him take something from a locker and then head out to the football field. He decides to follow a Spider-Man. We witness a hostage exchange, Bolton's daughter for the computer chip. However, Payne reneges on the deal, electing to keep Mindy and the chip. Bolton snaps and starts his run. The longest, deadliest hundred yards. Bolton weaves and ducks, avoiding the gunfire this time, not an opposing team's players, and never taking his eye off the prize, this time no mere football game, but his daughter's life. Bolton makes it, knocking Payne to the floor and pulling his daughter free, but at a cost. 
Shielding his child, his bullet-riddled body clings to her and falls to the floor. It's here that Spider-Man enters the scene, having left the locker room on the other side of campus. I really don't understand how that can have happened when he was following Bolton, but again, it is what it is. Spider-Man has no problem taking out the machine gun-toting goons, and he lands beside Payne as angry as we have ever seen him. Spider-Man takes great delight in lamping Payne, knocking him unconscious to the floor. Bolton dies, knowing he saved Mindy, but a cost to the larger world. What else could he have achieved, Spidey wonders, as he arranges for an ambulance. This is a pretty neat issue, with some minor niggles, but nevertheless, a powerful story of sacrifice and love for one's child, driving you to greater heights. It's the kind of heartfelt story they could have done on the TV show in 1978, if that show would be more like The Incredible Hulk and less like Charlie's Angels. The niggle I have with it is the idea that losing a football game somehow equates to the struggle to save a daughter's life, but that's mainly because I don't really consider football to be that important. You lose a game, you move on. Of course, I acknowledge that some people have a higher opinion of football than I do, and I'm reminded of the possibly apocryphal quote from Bill Shankly. Quote, Some people believe football is a matter of life and death. I am very disappointed with that attitude. I can assure you, it is much, much more important than that. End quote. Still, football aside, this was a nice little tale, with all the requisite subplot boxes ticked, and some lovely artwork by Ross Andrew. Interestingly, as I've mentioned, Ween sets up a running subplot here without us even noticing. The organisation after the computer part will carry over to the next few issues. Also interesting, the letters page is devoted to trying to explain all the plot holes and dangling threads left over from the Clone Saga. As Jerry Conway has left the building, it's up to assistant editor Roger Silfer to try and paper over the cracks. In this, he succeeds and fails pretty much in equal measure. Some of his explanations hold water, others not so much, as with this one. Trained reporter Ned Leeds apparently doesn't know that Peter Parker is Spider-Man simply because the blindfold also covered his ears. I call shenanigans. Its canonicity, if that is indeed a word, is questionable at this point. But thanks for giving it a go, Roger. As surely as issue 152 follows 151, we get another Kane Remita cover. This time Spider-Man fights the Sandman. This version of the Sandman wears the Jack Kirby-designed costume. It's dynamic and fun and easily the best thing about the issue. The Sandman Always Strikes Twice features guest art by Sal Buscema and Mike Esposito. And it's fine. I like Sal Buscema a lot. I think he's an excellent draftsman. But there were times in the 70s where he was rent-a-penciler. Got a gig that's running late? Need someone who can save a deadline? Call our pal Sal. Sal pinch hit wherever and whenever he was needed, and he did it very well. But there's no denying that this is by-the-numbers stuff. It doesn't help that the story is uninspired. Spider-Man, still reeling from the death of Dr. Bolton, takes his frustrations out on a bunch of muggers, getting carried away and nearly beating one of them to death. Only the mugger's intended victim manages to calm our hero down. Spider-Man bemoans his lot. He can't sell these photos to the Bugle. Jonah would have a field day with the shots of Spider-Man losing it. 
I'll cut Peter some slack here for woolly thinking. He could just develop the shots himself and simply neglect to give Jonah the offending pictures. But he is having a bad day. This is a decent opener, exploring the man behind the mask. How much does the random violence that Peter sees on a regular basis affect him? How long before he loses it? Sadly, it would be left to the much later story, the death of Jean DeWolf, to really explore these mental health issues, as within seconds we're into a more routine story of the Sandman being broken out of an armoured truck during a prisoner transfer. He's swiftly given his suit and told to steal a mechanism at the research facility across town. Can you vague that up for me? The goons who freed the Sandman are wearing the same costume as the goons who killed Dr. Bolton, and Spider-Man notices this when he's lured to the research facility by the Sandman, who has bought an old spider tracer on the black market. They then fight. And that's it. There's no appearances by Mary Jane, Flash, Harry or anyone else, and Spider-Man never takes off his mask, meaning there's nothing for Peter Parker to do either. We never find out who freed the Sandman, a plotline for another day, and Sandman is mischaracterised as a raving psychotic throughout. The Doctor Octopus subplot is still bubbling along, and that's about it. Comics historian Peter Sanderson has a letter in the Spider's web, but there's nothing of note in the letters page either. Amazing Spider-Man issue 155's cover is an odd one, and as much as it pains me to say this, not Ramita's best. The image is split into five separate sections, all depicting Spider-Man in various forms of trouble. He's been shot at by the police, beaten up by some random street guys, throttled by a pair of steel hands, has a large object thrown at him, and is under fire from an unseen assailant. One of these images on their own would be fine. Five makes for a very busy cover with too much going on. Who is the most incredible killer of all? runs the cover copy, which also asks us to follow Spider-Man through a web of deception and death as he struggles to discover... Who done it? The latter is also the title of the story, and this issue brings this mini arc about the computerized device that catalogues all worldwide habitual offenders to a conclusion. Again, with art by Sal Buscema. Earlier on, I did tell you to remember the initials for the worldwide habitual offenders computer, did I not? There will be a quiz later. This issue isn't much better than last time, and Ween seems to think Peter would make a decent detective, which flies in the face of every other writer who's attempted a detective story with the character, often having Peter himself point out that he's no detective. Still, doing a detective story with Spider-Man is an interesting wrinkle. It's a locked room mystery. Peter and Jonah arrive at Police HQ for a press conference with D.A. Tower. It's a weird splash, as not only does Peter bemoan Jonah's rate of pay, but the spectral form of Spider-Man hovers above them. Nothing new about that, you may think. But this floating head comments as if talking to Peter, not that he is Peter. Peter, my lad, the spectral version of Spider-Man, thinks if you knew what you were getting into, you'd go home. They are at HQ for Tower to tell them more about the device Dr. Bolton was working on with his partner, Armstrong Smith. Sadly, they find Smith dead. This has a really quite unintentionally funny moment. Smith's door is locked, and so Tower asks a man to open it. Now, being police HQ, I was expecting the man to pull out some keys, but no, he just shoots the lock off. Opening fire in a police station apparently has no one even look up from whatever the hell it is they're doing to look at what's occurring. I don't know what that says. 
Smith's dead body ends up on the front page of the bugle thanks to Peter. This is a really interesting and effective scene transition. We cut from the panel of the dead body to Peter's picture of the dead body. And it's exactly the same panel. And it's a very cinematic and visually interesting transition. Kudos to Sal. We're now at the bugle where Peter and city editor Robbie Robertson discussed the case. The police have no leads. Smith was shot in Police HQ in a locked room by a small calibre firearm. The door was locked from within, and despite the bullet hole in Smith's head, no bullet or weapon has been found. What follows is a very morally ambiguous scene. Spider-Man wonders why the cops can't just use the computer Smith and Bolton designed. After all, isn't its purpose to track criminal offenders? The police can't use it as it's considered evidence. Spider-Man, therefore, breaks into a crime scene and tampers with said evidence. Now, I know what you're thinking, and you're right, but he's doing it for noble reasons, you're thinking. Yeah, I can kind of see that. But, you know, it's still, still a little bit of a grey area. Spider-Man punches the data into the Who computer and it spews forth three names of people most likely to want to kill Smith. Jason Sledge, Leroy Talon and Conrad Fox. Spider-Man is on the case. Well, he will be on the case after he's left and to do that he has to beat up a few cops, a situation that I'm sure will really endear him to the NYCPD. The investigation leads him first to Jason Sledge, but Sledge is a washed-out drunk. He couldn't have committed the crime. His second lead is to Leroy Talon, but Talon was committing another crime last night, so it can't have been him. Conrad Fox is a dead end, largely because he's dead. These investigations aren't so much detective work as they are Spidey beating people up until they tell him what he wants to know. So between his complete disregard for evidence tampering and his desire to just hit people until they capitulate... He was basically Jack Bauer before Jack Bauer. He does find Fox due to dogged determination rather than punching people, so he's maturing as a person, I guess. In the finale, though, he doesn't so much figure it out as be led to it by his nose. He returns to the Who computer at Police HQ, which, despite being broken into earlier by Spider-Man, and despite him having to fight a few police officers to get out, still hasn't been put under surveillance and or guard. Spider-Man approaches the Who computer to see what went wrong. And Shades of Cyberdyne, or the Cylons, the Who computer has turned against its creators and become sentient. It talks to Spider-Man. It tells him it gained its own sentience, killed Smith, and made it look like Smith had been murdered. All because Who's plans are too grandiose to allow a mere human to stop them. Somehow, the Who computer can lock the door. A door that isn't in any way tied into a computerised system. Oh yeah, those plans to to become ruler of the underworld. No, no, I'm serious. That's his plan, to become ruler of the, the, the underworld. Yeah, 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 you're absolutely right. Brain the size of a planet and he wants to rule the underworld. No, no, I'm I'm completely with you, lovely listener. No, no, it, it, it doesn't make any sense at all. Anyway, Spider-Man then webs up the events causing Who to overheat. He then makes the really obvious gag that, in the murder of Armstrong Smith, Who done it? We all have a good laugh. 
Apparently, the whole Who computer storyline was carried over from Daredevil. As far as I'm concerned, it should have stayed there. Ignoring the lame gag that concludes the issue, there are so many stupid factors in this story. One, Peter's detective skills are woefully inadequate. And in fact, he only solves this case because it's the Who computer is so stupid as to own up to it. If it had kept its chip shut, it could have just kept feeding name after name to Peter until Peter got bored. Secondly, after all that, whose big super plan is to rule the underworld? For all its blustering, it's got no more imagination than the Green Goblin or the Kingpin. Hell, even Cyberdyne and the Daleks have more ambition than just rule the underworld. Third, did we really base an entire issue around a bad pun? This isn't a good issue. And that's largely because this is a DC comic. You know, it's one of those old Flash comics where he's got to solve a mystery. And then there's the only thing that it's missing is a panel where Spidey goes, hmm, and a caption box underneath saying, have you figured it out, reader? Fortunately, the next issue is much better. Now, some of my love of Amazing Spider-Man 156 may be nostalgia. It was one of the earliest American Spider-Man comics I ever owned. I didn't get it when it came out in May 1976. I picked it up many, many years later, probably 1980 or 1981. But for ages, it was the oldest Spider-Man comic I owned. On a clear day, you can see the mirage, sees Ross Andrew return. And the lettering is really cool on this issue as well, with Gaspar performing that task. It's amazing how something like just changing the lettering can really add to the look of the comic. The cover sees Spider-Man swing in to fight two mirages as Betty and Ned try to get married in the background. Also in attendance, Jonah, Robbie, MJ, Harry and Aunt May. We'll come to that later. It's credited to Ramita alone and is pretty good. The big day opens with us being promised that this is a milestone in the ever-exciting life of Spider-Man. I think we'll be the judge of that. The splash page is great. It sees Spider-Man swinging, a normal occurrence, I think you'll agree. But under the stunning pencil work of Ross Andrew, it looks spectacular and poster-worthy. The sun rises, and our hero notes he hasn't slept all night. A quick recap leads to the conclusion that the last three issues have all taken place over a few days, so it's no wonder that he's tired. Len redoes the whodunit gag, because he finds it funnier than I do. Spider-Man then alights upon the rooftop of his apartment to be beaten over the head with a broom. Now, given Spider-Man's strength and Spider-Senses, which do warn him, I wouldn't have expected him to be knocked clear off his feet, but here we are. It turns out Mrs. Muggins, his landlady, is an early bird and starts beating the tar out of our hero, believing him to be a peeping Tom. A genuinely funny beat, this. Mrs. Muggins was a supporting character for years. She never really amounted to much more than comic relief, but she was at least funny comic relief. Across town, Ween's subplot with the homeless guy bubbles and simmers some more, with the man quivering in fear over some unseen menace. Lost and alone, the man realises there's only one person who can help him now. And thus, a minor subplot becomes a major storyline, but for next issue. This issue sees our stalwart cast ready themselves for Betty and Ned's nuptials, 
Jonah practices his smile, Flash worries Harry won't know where he's going, and Liz ponders life's rich tapestry as she recalls that once upon a time, Betty only had eyes for Peter. An impatient, Robbie Robertson rushes his family out of the door, but Peter's door remains resolutely closed. Peter Parker is still inside, struggling with his bow tie. Fortunately, Mary Jane arrives and shows him how it's done. She even hints that she herself may be up to marriage at some point in the future. This is a throwaway gag, but it's interesting in hindsight. Gwen was killed because Marvel were deathly afraid of her and Peter getting married, and here, a scant 30-odd issues later, were seeding another girlfriend wanting to hook Peter. It'll never happen, though. The Wedding of the Century! I say century, I mean decade. I say decade, I mean issue, is taking place at Morgans of Malvern, apparently the place for just such an occasion. This does not seem to be a real place, but it's popular. There are a number of weddings taking place today, but only the leads are in the Cupid room. Peter heads straight to the food, but before he can shovel the doilies down his throat, he's called away. The wedding is about to begin. The guest list here is a curious affair. It's not that MJ and Peter are invited. That makes sense, even if Betty and MJ have never really been the best of friends. But she is Peter's plus one. And Peter has been a good friend to Ned and Betty over the years. Give it a few more years, he'll be a very good friend to Betty, giving her every exclusive, if you know what I mean. But to be Ned's best man, that makes very little sense. Now, we don't know a lot about Ned's background, or Betty's at this point, Kurt Busiek's untold tales being a few decades in the future, but Ned must have other friends, right? A brother, a father, a school chum, anyone? Peter's really the best he could come up with for best man? It makes about as much sense as MJ being the maid of honour, given that I really doubt that MJ can be described as being a maid of anything. But this is comics, and we don't want to get bogged down with other characters, so for expediency, or laziness, Peter is best man and Mary Jane is maid of honour. Fine. Whatever. Meanwhile, outside, Die Hard is happening. A group of smoothly dressed criminals enter Morgan's and start by shooting the concierge. That's rather unsporting. They then don outlandish yellow outfits and commence robbing the wedding guests. The leader was a brighter shade of yellow and has teapot handles on either side of his head. I'm not terribly sure this is a good plan for a robbery. Mirage, for it is he and his chums, hit each wedding one at a time. And yet no one at the wedding they just hit seems to think about calling the police. After hitting the other weddings in the building, they make the mistake of hitting the Leedses. Ween milks the comedy, as does Andrew, with Mirage sticking his gun up Jonah's nose but things turn serious when they beat up Harry, who tries the whole chivalry bit when the goons threaten Liz. Peter has had enough. A quick web line to the light switch plunges the room into darkness, the Cupid room apparently being devoid of even a skylight, and this confuses our not-too-bright villains. There's a really funny panel that's completely black, but with Batman-esque sound effects filling the square. With darkness all around, Peter switches to Spider-Man. Don't worry, he's already had the thought that it sure was lucky he wore his costume under his cummerbund, and it's time for action. Well, not before MJ yells out, Hey, where's Peter? Just as Spidey makes his big entrance. But MJ, don't you know where Peter is? After all, as established, 
you know Peter is Spider-Man at this point. And if you do know, then this is really inconsiderate of you. Another brilliant panel from Andrew next. Spider-Man runs across the ceiling, but the artist flips the angle. So Spider-Man looks like he's the right way up, and the crooks who are on the floor are upside down. The letterer gets in on the action as well, lettering the page upside down, meaning the reader has to turn the comic the other way around to read the dialogue, which will only be irritating many years later reading this comic on Comixology. Spider-Man finds out why he's called Mirage when Spidey punches him, and he isn't where he should be. But Spider-Man outthinks him. See, Mirage makes the mistake of telling Spidey how his powers work, so our hero no slouch in the brains department, figures out that if he manages to land something that covers the room, it'll take out the mirage. This is an excellent action sequence. Andrew has Spider-Man take out the goons and then mirage in visually interesting ways. And Mirage's face, when he realises that he's done for, is hysterical. See, what Spidey does is he brings a chandelier down. The chandelier is massive, covering almost the entire room. So although the mirage thinks that he's not going to get hit, the chandelier takes out both mirages at the same time. Clever. Peter returns, tells some guff about not being able to get back into the building after nipping out to call the police, and no one is suspicious. Jonah even berates him for not taking any pictures. Robbie isn't even seen, as I'm sure he'd have raised an eyebrow. The wedding gets back underway, and Aunt May catches the bouquet as the happy couple drive away on their honeymoon. Why is Aunt May here again? Whatever the reason, May returns home to see a homeless man has broken in. It's the same homeless man from the last few issues who is, as I mentioned, Dr. Octopus. Life just got a lot more complicated for Peter Parker. So, Lenween's run opens with a mixed bag of issues. Some are very good, funny, with good groundwork for the future being laid. Others are dopey and barely worth your time. This was one of the better ones, wrapping up a long dangling plot thread and being visually interesting and fun. We'll have to see where it goes from here. But that's for the future. After this break, I'll be back with your email. It is a time of chivalry and adventure. It is a world of magic and legends. It is a story of... Are we there yet? For the 20th time, no. These two. What are we going after again? A dragon. Are you sure? I thought it was a giant. That's the beauty. It hasn't been decided yet. Queen of the Knights is a new production from Azir Voices, where you, the listener, choose what happens. Go to azirvoices.com, that's A-E-S-I-R voices.com, for all the details. Ooh, a kitty! Did that cat just breathe fire? Okay, let's have a quick look at the emails. Some may be edited for time today only because I am 10, 15 minutes away from having to leave the house. 
I did not believe that episode would take nearly an hour, but we'll see how it goes. Regan Jew has emailed in. Hi, Andy. Hi, Regan. I'm sorry I haven't written more frequently to the show. I hope you and the rest of the Leyland family had a great Christmas and will have a happy new year. I just saw on my podcast feed that the Hey Kids Christmas Presents episode was released. I always look forward to listening to it. Well, I hope you enjoyed it, Regan. I finally saw No Time to Die. I waited to listen to your episode until I saw it. Thank you for the spoiler warning in the episode. That's fur. That's okay. No worries. I prefer your ending over the actual ending. I like the image of seeing a massive agent storming the villain's lure. That's when you know you're in the last act of a Bond film. Now, Regan does an awful lot of good comments here. Uh, I will edit them just in case because I'm not going to put a spoiler warning in this one. Anna Diarmas Paloma character is a high point similar to the Wonder Woman in Batman vs Superman. You are correct. She was absolutely brilliant. The score has flourishes of classic Bond themes. Yeah, for Hans Zimmer, it's not bad. The Aston Martin DB5 got its hero moment. Oh, did it. Capping the film with We Have All the Time in the World is a nice callback to Honor Majesty's Secret Service. Did you also notice, Regan, that the Honor Majesty's Secret Service theme plays in the background where Bond and M have the conversation on London Bridge? Uh, Subvillains Double Agent Ash and Mad Saint Obdovchev were compelling. They were, in, yeah, they were good characters there. Bond tossing his visitor's badge into Money Penny's trash bin with a plum is a nice variation of old Bond films where he tosses his hat on the rack. Yes, yeah, that was, I didn't know. Yeah, that's a good point. That I just, yeah, he used to throw it. Yeah, you are correct. Uh, the parts I had problems with. This is into spoiler territory, so you know I'm just gonna have to. Uh, I will skip that. Saffron was not an interesting or charismatic villain. No, it should have been Blofeld. I agree wholeheartedly with the James Bond radio guys. Cut Saffin, or just have him be the henchman. The bad guy should have been Blofeld. He shouldn't have died in the cell. He should have been the one who Bond fought um, in the conclusion. Uh, I didn't get the Bond Madeline romance inspector, and then carrying over to this film seems more for continuity and plot convenience. I was of the opinion that the pre-credit sequence could have been cut to starting just as Bond arrives at Vesper's grave. But somebody else pointed out to me that is the only time we see them happy. So, yeah, I, yeah it, it all depends on whether that relationship works to you. Uh, why did Nomi keep bringing up who got to use the 007 title? I get the impression that Bond cared about the number. Those characters made her character look petty. Maybe it was to show that she was competitive. Uh, yeah, I didn't get the impression Bond really cared that he was 007 in the Daniel Craig era. It's As far as he's concerned, it is just a number. You know. Um, there's a spoiler there, so I'll leave that one for now. I hope I don't sound too negative on the... No, no, they're good. They're all good comments there. Overall, the film is strong up to the point where something happens and Bond has to escape the sinking ship. Jeffrey Wright does a solid performance. I don't mind rewatching the movie up to this point. I'm not committed to the full runtime and I get to enjoy all the parts of the film I like. At the end, it does say James Bond will return. Right, I'm going to talk here. Denis Villeneuve, Edgar Wright and Christopher Nolan have all said that they have a pitch for a Bond movie. So what I would do, were I Eon, is I would let all three of them do one. I would say to all three of them, right, here you go, here's your budget, do what you want. And then release them a year apart from each other, so you're not waiting six years for another James Bond movie. Uh, and in each case, the three of those directors can do whatever their pitch is, whatever kind of Bond movie they want to make, with whichever actor they want to employ to be Bond. And I think that'd be interesting. Oh, there goes the dog. 
It's not quite the end, dog. I think that'd be quite interesting to hear three completely disparate takes on Bond from three directors who aren't worried about having to set up the next movie. They could do whatever they wanted. Adapt a book in a more faithful way if it's one that's already not been done. A completely new take on the story. Set it in the 50s or the 60s. Whatever the three of those guys wanted to do, I would be there for it. Because I would love to see an Edgar Wright Bond movie. I would love to see a Denis Villeneuve Bond movie. I'd quite like to see a Christopher Nolan Bond movie. So that would be cool. That's what I would do. Thank you for your review of the film, continued Regan, because it made me think about it myself. You're very welcome. Sorry, I redacted some of your email. I don't want to put a spoiler bit on this. As long as you still have fun writing recording The Palace of Glittering Delights, I will have fun consuming your thoughts that inform and entertain. Well, thank you very much. That's very much appreciated. To inform ed edutainment. <laughs> That's what I'm doing. Rob McCarthy's emailed in. I remember a few things about The Champions. It was on at 2 a.m. Okay. It really wanted you to love your coloured TV set. Well, the 60 shows did. That's what's cool about them. It must be the oldest thing that superheroes champions, like Marvel's Contest of and the role-playing game on the monkeys. Oh, no, sorry. There should have been a full stop there. On the monkeys, it's always bugged me that neither the monkeys nor Sonny Boy Williamson, great blues harmonica player who's an influence on hard rock, would be hard to overstate. If you can't let the monkeys in... Is this about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? Right, you have to put the monkeys in. Okay, fair enough. I, I don't care about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. <laughs> yes, the monkeys should be in there. Okay. And finally, our email tonight is also about the monkeys with apologies to Spidey and the champions. Charlie Niemeyer has emailed in. Hey, Ander. Hey, Charlie. With all due respect to the work you put in covering the Spider-Man Christmas story and your ability to make me want to check out a British show from the 60s that doesn't have Doctor and or Who in the title, I was so glad to hear you enjoyed The Monkeys. <laughs> well, The Champions is on archive.org, Charlie, just Google it. The Monkeys were now my favourite band. I was first introduced to them in the 80s, although not until they showed up on Nickelodeon. My parents felt MTV was a little too old for us, so we weren't allowed to watch it. Quickly, The Monkeys were the only show we could watch on the channel. My parents had been fans in the 60s and were all too happy to help me obtain whatever reissue records we could find and take me to two different concerts, which also introduced me to Herman's Herbits during their first tour and Weird Al during the second. Unfortunately, Nesmith, my personal favourite, was not part of those shows, but I did finally manage to see him live performing with Mickey just one month before his death. Why am I telling you this? Humble bragging, maybe. Actually, it's mostly that I'm just trying to pad out the email in case this is the only one you have for the episode. You're welcome. I should have uh, I should have saved this one for next time. The show was a constant for me during the late 80s until it disappeared from the airways once the 20th anniversary fever died down. Living in the sweet spot between Baltimore, Maryland and Washington, D.C., we got channels broadcasting from both cities, leaving plenty of non-network affiliated stations looking for syndicated shows to fill their schedules. I've been told that a lot of my sarcastic humour came from the show. Oh, and fun fact about Rio Chu, which again, I'm probably butchering the pronunciation of. The song actually was recorded for inclusion on an album, but Davey wasn't available. So Chip Douglas sang his part. The harmony was still great. Unfortunately, it never actually made it to an album until the 80s, when Rhino Records released several unreleased tracks in the Missing Links collection. Well, I think that's long enough. Thank you for all your hard work. Love the show, Charlie. P.S. Here are two important things the monkeys taught me. One, love is the ultimate trip. Two, save the Texas prairie chicken. I will take your word for those two things because that just went right over my head, dude. 
All right, thank you very much, everyone, for emailing in. I'm sorry I cut Regan's email a little bit, because uh, a little bit of spoiler talk on No Time to Die, though. But speaking of Bond, next time, an all-new episode. It's the 200th episode of the Palace of Glittering Delight. And for this very special occasion, I'm going to be ranking the James Bond films. Well, all the official ones, so not the one with Woody Allen and not the one that Sean Connery did when he said he wouldn't ever do it again, but did, because he kind of shouldn't have, because Never Say Never Again isn't very good. It's all going to be okay. You can email me on heykidscomics at virginmedia.com, and I'll see you next time, whenever that time may be. Goodbye.